shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm Matt Bradley Shergi, and... With me is William Thrasher. Hello, everybody. I cannot wait to start watching this movie one minute at a time. That's right. No, it's not one of those podcasts, although those are absolutely fine. Um, We're going to be looking at a quadrilogy of films, this time starting with the first film in the series. It is about a cybernetic police officer. I'm talking about RoboCod. Whoops, I mean RoboCop. His name is Murphy. Part man, part machine, all cop. It's the future of law enforcement. Came out in 87, directed by Paul Verhoeven, written by Edward Newmeyer and Michael Miner, starring Peter Weller, Nancy Allen, Daniel O'Hurley, Ronnie Cox, Kurtwood Smith, and the late Miguel Ferrer, with music by Basil Paliodorus, cinematography by Just Vacano. Robocop. Where to begin? This is, um... Quite, quite the the motion picture. I I've seen this movie well over a dozen times, which is pretty unusual for me. <laughs> it's um. I guess when is the first time you heard of uh, RoboCop Thrasher? Well, I heard of it when the movie came out. It was it was inescapable. The film had a big impact. It was very popular. Uh, it was being referenced and parodied. There was a. This may have been around the time of RoboCop 2, but there was even a muffler ad involving RoboCop. Uh, there was a, a uh, I think it might have been Meineke, a Meineke ad where the, the slogan was, you're not going to pay a lot for this muffler. And there was one of the commercials, a RoboCop showed up in the, in the muffler store, painted red for copyright reasons, of course, saying in his synthesized voice, you're not going to pay a lot for this muffler. Um and I, in fact, saw RoboCop uh, a few months after its release. I uh, saw it on cable. So it had some censorship? Uh, I think it was HBO, so I don't believe it did. Ah, okay. Yeah, I, I saw this movie when I was when I was eight. Probably <laughs> shouldn't have, but it was it was just like my parents were up late watching it, and I couldn't get to sleep. So like, oh well, we're watching a movie. Why don't you just sit and watch it with us? And I think I came in right before uh, the infamous shotgunning scene. <laughs> did uh, your parents like the movie? Uh, my dad did. Uh, my mother was politely indifferent. Um, yeah, this my dad did show uh, my sister and I a lot of violent movies, but he never showed us RoboCop for some reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, and I, the first uh, was aware of RoboCop when I, I lived overseas, and we had a, a friend who was, um, I think he was like 12 or 13 at the time, and he was trying to draw RoboCop in his notebook. And so I, I, I saw what RoboCop was from sort of the shitty drawings in his notebook, and then later I played the Nintendo game, but it wasn't until... I was in um, high school that one weekend I rented the uh, original RoboCop trilogy and, and sat down and watched it one Saturday. And uh, and that was a fun time. Cool. Yeah, this is a movie, it should be noted, there's uh, two different cuts. There's the R-rated theatrical cut, 
which is difficult to find. And uh, what you'll find on home video nowadays typically is the unrated cut, which um, it's not like deleted scenes really, but you get a lot more of a violence of body parts getting blown off in and the unrated version. I've, I've got to applaud this movie for the violence in this film is outright grotesque. It is not sanitized violence. It is not heroic violence. It is not redemptive violence. It is brutal, bloody, disturbing violence. Even if it, it and a lot of people will claim that it's violence as slapstick because it's so over the top. It's only over the top compared to other action movies. Compared to the brutality human beings can inflict on each other in a normal day, it's pretty standard. And it does, there is a lot of shades of gray in this movie, as we'll talk about, because um, it's not always obvious who the good guy is. I mean, you could even say Rebel Cop takes his job too far. Hmm. He he can be a violent individual himself, but we should uh, get into the uh, the story here. It takes place in the, the 2040s in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I, I, the movie, I don't know if you'd say it's like post-apocalyptic, but there's certainly a lot of um, things going on around the world. And you have these brilliant news segments and fake commercials that sort of uh, give the movie a lot of flavor. And later on, there's uh, very similar things going on in Starship Troopers, which is also from the same director, Paul Verhoeven, and the same uh, one of the same writers, Edward Neumeier. Yes, he, they, they are both uh, fascinated with uh, with reality fiction media uh and reality and where they overlap and in the news segments they cast real um tv news people <laughs> and they're not actors and it makes it seem more authentic it's um you know you don't have to pay attention to the politics that are going on but it's it's amusing if you do it's uh, uh it just gives a lot of flavor because in, 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 you don't expect a robocop to start with like a fake commercial and a, a new segment. It takes you a bit off guard, as you know, this is not going to be your ordinary movie. Although I will say they get to uh, the Alex Murphy becoming RoboCop quite quick, all things considered. Yeah, following the old uh, Robert McKee uh, maxim or axiom, one, what's one of those two, about uh, putting the inciting incident as close to the beginning of your movie as possible. Yeah, I'm also the screenwriter William Goldman, who wrote... Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid says you want to start each scene as late as possible and leave as early as possible. Yep. Which is pretty good advice. Now, Peter Weller, I don't think he gives a great performance as Alex Murphy, but he makes a hell of a RoboCop. And I can't quite <laughs> get over it if that's a deliberate choice because he comes off as very robotic as Alex Murphy. And we frankly don't get to know the, the man before he becomes part machine. Well, it it is it is strange because in, in a lot of ways you do feel more for him as RoboCop than as uh, Alex Murphy, and I'm not sure if that's the direction they're working with or if they're just doing everything they can to take advantage of the otherness of Peter Weller. One of Peter Weller's strengths is kind of like kind of like Christopher Walken. He's mm. just being present in a scene makes the scene a little stranger because there's something not quite right about him. I mean, look, watching this movie, Peter Weller as Alex Murphy looks like the kind of person who's destined to become a remorseless cyborg. 
he has these striking eyes, like the nose and the chin. I mean, I never thought of the Christopher Walken comparison, but you're absolutely right. It's um. Well, he's yeah, he's like an alien a in a fit. human suit. That's right. Yeah, he seems sort of like uncomfortable in his skin. It's it, it's so strange. I don't know how what they were thinking, and but it. It works, I mean, because, I mean, really, at the beginning, you almost think the main character is going to be Nancy Allen, who plays Officer Ann Lewis. Who, can I say, I absolutely adore her in this film. Yeah, she's she's good. She gets to do some action scenes. She's kind of the emotional heart of the film. Not that there's a romance between uh, her and Murphy, but there's, uh, she kind of provides the humanity. Well, that's the other thing I like, that she she's not a romantic interest and that they didn't they didn't go for like a, a sexy action heroine she she looks like a real lady cop you know she she's not she's not glamorous she's she's short uh she she has a compact physique that doesn't look doesn't look athletic but does look powerful and I think there's something endearing right. about the fact that when she's in her tactical gear, it, all all of her stuff looks about half a size too large. And it's not an over. It's not like a sexualized outfit at all. It's a very gender neutral, um, almost like military looking outfit with the bulletproof vest and everything and the big helmet. Um, and the movie in the beginning, especially, does a really good job of balancing between you have ostensibly the main story of these uh you know peter weller gets reassigned to this dangerous district in detroit and he has a he's a, a great reputation of being a cop and then you have all the um corporate backstabbing stuff going on at ocp omni consumer products perfect name perfect logo it is it's a very overbearing logo i mean i think of in gremlins 2 you have the uh, corporation in that, and that logo looks a bit like the OCP logo. Oh, the clamp, yes. The clamp, yeah, with the big C. Um, so you have Daniel O'Hurley as the old man, who's kind of the head guy on top. Next in line is Ronnie Cox as Dick Jones. And then you have Miguel Ferrer, who's sort of an up-and-coming executive, as Bob Morton. What do you think about these characters? They play great corporate shills. I mean, they they are they are all business uh, in in the best ways, and I love I love that when they're when they're unveiling the, with the ED the ED two hundred nine justice enforcement drone and how you know they're they, they give the old they give no thought to the implications of the technology they want to sell. They only talk about how they're going to market it, and they're so detached from the human angle until they realize that they need a human angle. <laughs> they need to find a way to turn a human into a product that they can market to law enforcement and the military. Yeah, and uh, Bob Morton's pet project, as we'll see, is RoboCop. Um, but Dick Jones is ED209, who is a, a great you know bipedal sort of tyrannosaurus rex meets ufo kind of robot thing that in a hilarious scene um it you know says 
it, so it has a, a corporate guy points a gun at him and he's like, please drop your weapon. And the guy drops his weapon and then he still gets blown to smithereens. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's also, which... yeah, go on. Oh, no, just, just that. And, and that's actually now now that we are entering an age where law enforcement drones may very well become a real thing. I don't know if you, you've seen there's that that mall out in Silicon Valley where they have these like uh, robot security cop drones. Uh, it raises a very compelling issue, which is, you know, if, if a police officer uh, shoots an innocent person, that's a miscarriage of justice. If a robot police officer shoots somebody, oh well, that's a uh, that's a bug in 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 the product that they'll need to be worked out in a future iteration. It also makes me thinking of the recent technology of the uh, the the cameras built in on the police helmets, where it's oh yeah being used, you know, as evidence. Where oh was was the police officer shooting this unarmed guy justified or not, or was he really a danger? Um. And, and certainly, it, as you mentioned, with the uh, with drones, and now you need a license to pilot drones, and uh, it yeah, it's this movie is very prophetic uh, in a lot of ways. I, I should I for I left out one of the corporate guys who has a smaller part in this than in the sequels, but Fulton Perry plays Donald Johnson, and um, that he's the guy with glasses, and he doesn't get a lot of dialogue, but he has a lot of really good expressions on his face. He seems to be. One of the people really on RoboCop's side who gets a kick at the end of the movie. Oh, if I can say uh, one more thing about uh, ED-209, he is a wonderful special effect. In a, in a pre-CGI era, ED-209 is some of the best of what intricate stop motion and go motion is capable of. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at the time, even though this was a lower-budget film, they spent their money... Uh, in the effects, the RoboCop suit is an iconic design. I love the the blue, purplish chrome hues on it as it goes through the different lighting, and um, ED two hundred nine is is also pretty good. And uh, we should talk yeah, about ED2- um, yeah. And ED two hundred nine spends most of this movie powered down. There's only really a few. I'd like to do. I'd like to time it. There may very well be only thirty or forty seconds of ED two hundred nine truly moving, but damned if those aren't the best looking forty seconds of animation you have ever seen. In fact, uh, believe it or not, RoboCop won a special achievement Academy Award for best sound editing huh, by Stephen really? Hunter Flick and John Pops pistol because uh they do a great job when you know alex murphy becomes robocop and you hear the the clunkiness of his feet as they hit the ground same with ed 209 with his screaming and screeching as he gets knocked over it is a real uh tour de force oddly enough it was not nominated for an oscar for best special effects which is a bit baffling but there you go um well, we did should, win five yeah. Saturn Awards. Yes. No, I mean, the movie won, um, yeah, for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Director, Best Writing, Best Makeup, and Best Special Effects for the Saturn Awards, and was nominated for a few BAFTAs, uh, did not win. But we should say that, um, as far as we're talking about actors in the film, there's a lot of 
later well-known actors that play part of the the bad guys you know sort of a group of bad guys that get picked off one through one throughout the story we've talked about the corporate guys we've talked about the the heroic cops and now we have uh the the gang of bad guys led by kurt ward smith who plays clarence bodiger uh listeners might know him best as the dad on that 70s show but he's a mean son of a bitch in this movie yeah, he he has that that perfect. I don't want to. Say, he it's a great character actor face and voice that he has, but I like that. I like that he's again like uh, like Alex Murphy's partner. He's not he's not a threatening physical presence. It all comes from his his domineering attitude and just these these you know crazy looks he can give. There's also um, Ray Wise, who's perhaps best known as Leland Palmer in Twin Peaks, plays Leon Nash. You, um, the other, there's other actors in there that I'm forgetting, but it's, it's just a fun, nasty group of bad guys that brings to mind some of the, the, the tone of, of um, some of the punks in the Mad Max films. They they have the same level of brutality, yes. Right, and they're laughing all the time, and they're sort of manic. I mean, um, in a in an opening scene, you know, right off the bat, uh, the mission that Murphy and Lewis go on is they're tracking down Clarence Boddicker as they head towards this um, industrial factory that's a set piece for many of the action sequences in the film, the steel mill. And uh, as they head over there, the the bad guys take one of their own guys who gets shot or they throw his body on he doesn't get shot but they throw his body on top of the car the cop car (laughs) in cold blood it's an intense scene and um when they track the bad guys down they try to call backup but no backup is available so they decide to go and do it do you think it would have been different yeah Go on. No, just the, the, the opening showdown in in the steel mill is wonderfully effective. It almost feels like it would be the end of a different movie, you know. <laughs> you know, you're right because <laughs> it's, it's sort of the climax. We're okay. We got it. We we're introduced to these sort of bad guy archetypes, and now we're gonna try and you know just the the two main heroes going in, but you know they get they get split up, and uh, as you hinted to earlier, Alex Murphy gets shot to bits in a really moving, painful-to-watch scene. Peter Weller makes some great expressions, but there's also a very good prosthetic Peter Weller making some of those screaming expressions. And it's tough to tell which is which sometimes. Well, it's 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 pretty horrific. I mean, they have, they have, him, they have him restrained, and they, they go about shooting off his limbs just to, just to, you know, to, to torture him, to send a message to whoever finds him later. Right, and uh, Officer Lewis gets sort of knocked unconscious, but she wakes up and she witnesses the whole thing happening. But luckily she's safe, and um, the paramedics have to rush to get Murphy, and um, then you know they, they take him to Bob Morton, uh, the, CEO, the corporate guy who has his you know pet project of RoboCop that he wants, and... Uh, Alex Murphy, in some ways, was like the perfect cop, so he's the perfect specimen for this. And uh, we get a, an interesting sort of first-person 
interlaced video montage. Um, oh, actually, before before we do that, can yes. can we talk just a little bit more about when Murphy gets shut up? Of course. So so just the the way they toy with him, you know, like aiming the shotgun at different parts of their of his body, doing that like like they're using yeah. a targeting system. It's it's a wonderful foreshadowing of what's going to be happening to to Murphy later. But speaking of people who saw this movie when they were probably way too young, uh, I've got a cousin uh, who saw this movie when he probably he was younger than I was when I saw this movie. Wow. And for a and he was and like a lot of kids, he was obsessed with RoboCops. But apropos of nothing for a year and a half. He would always want to talk about that seated RoboCop or RoboCop gets shot in the pagida. <laughs> and the pa- there's so many things wrong with that sentence and so many things <laughs> I was ill-equipped to communicate to him. Yeah. It's a scene that sticks with you. But yeah, uh... we so, uh that's one of the other uh, things I like about this is that you know that uh, the the police department is is uh, privatized through OCP. So when Murphy transferred there, the employment contract he signed technically means OCP is allowed to experiment on him. So he's like what declared legally dead has no more rights, so that they can strap what's left of his nervous system into the RoboCop project. Right, and that you might expect, oh, the scenes where they operate on him are going to be gory, but that's not really the case. It's all from his point of view. So it becomes a bit um, surreal. They do a good job of making the video uh, interlaced where it looks like it's from an old computer. And you see the these sort of text layouts. It's a bit like what you saw in Terminator uh, of the, you know, of the different, the boot-up sequences and different modes that, that are happening. And people, oh, yeah. like, throw, throw like, a, a, a Christmas party or something, and they put a hat on him. Like it's uh, they really sort of stretch it out, and you and the music gets a bit sad, and you kind of wonder, well, gee, what's what's this guy look like? What he's gonna, you know, what is this gonna end up looking like? Uh, what's gonna happen to well, that guy? The other thing I like about this this whole segment is that, like, it very easily and efficiently communicates that uh, over half a year passes between Murphy getting shot and Murphy. Standing up for the first time as RoboCop, and they do it not once, cutting to a, a calendar page ripping off, or like a clock uh, moving around or something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's well done. No, I mean, it's the, very... people, the people operating on him, the technicians get older. We see them celebrate holidays. It, it really is, and and, it, and it's it is it's very sort of humanizing and makes the film seem that much more real because the world goes on even when the protagonist of this movie is out of commission. You also get, uh, when Robocop wakes up, you see how good he is doing the, the target practice. You see, um, they mention that he has a digestive system. So they feed him this paste. That's a bit like baby food. Yeah. They just run a bunch of like, vegetables fruit and a little bit of protein through this masher and <laughs> he just gets goo it almost looks like a soft yeah. serve ice cream machine it's uh if only i look well it's a, the thing that i love is they they give absolutely no consideration to to murphy's comfort because as far as they're concerned he's not murphy anymore <laughs> he's robocop he's this new shiny product it, they don't have to feed him anything good 
You know, this is just, you know, the, the bare minimum fuel that he needs to get through the day. Although, if they're putting mush in, how do they get the mush out? Um, this film goes into so much detail on everything what? else. I kind of wish they explained. That's right. Like, does he have a catheter or a waste reservoir? Does that recharge chair suck it out of him? Oh, that's an idea. You know, what I think it is, is he has a little, he has a screw uh, on, on his bottom or something that you unscrew and it all kind of plops out. Like like compressed into a perfect solid cube. That's right. That, that, that gets recycled to make more slop for him to eat. Sort of like a... <laughs> oh, that may be too far even for this movie. Perhaps. Um, so we get a great sort of uh, montage. It's not really a montage, but it's a very video gamey sort of sequence where you see Robocop go on a few missions by himself. With the yeah, guy robbing the, the job. Yeah. We get to see him do the job done, but I, I love I love the the RoboCop vision they give him with the data displays and he can scroll through the law and that tar- that targeting reticule. I I remember after I saw this movie, I for about a week I imagined what the whole world would look like if I saw it through RoboCop's eyes. Yeah, I think it's it's better done than what you see in the original Terminator film, and it's it's really one of those. Um iconic parts of the movie i mean it's no surprise they made an arcade game of this pretty quickly because robocop is a natural for video games even though many of the video games are not so good but um i recall the the arcade game being fun enough and uh they made a version of it for nintendo that i used to play oh well and yeah the the original nes robocop game that was a ridiculously difficult game yeah, because at the beginning you could just punch dogs and stuff, and then sometimes you got the gun. But it, uh, RoboCop controlled very stiffly, but you could get baby food as energy, which was sort of nice. As, as I recall, you couldn't jump, and the boss fights were hell. Yes, yeah. No, I, I never got very far in it either. Um, there, there's the great scene where the, the girl's about to get raped, and the, the rapist sort of like holds a knife at her throat, and RoboCop shoots between her legs into the guy's crotch. Yeah. <laughs> and you get that scene from his point of view. It was uh, a very satisfying scene for whatever reason. It, it, it's well, I think, I think it's one of those things where the punishment fits the crime. I think so. What about the, the scene at the gas station? I mean, that's a hell of an explosion where oh, it's yeah, a, actually, where one of the guys robbing the gas station is a part of Boddicker's gang. Right, the guy with the facial hair. Oh yeah. Although what struck me though is that you know Robocop is also supposed to put on like a good face for the the police department and OCP. So there's this like a- after he he rescues the woman, uh, he he <laughs> starts giving her information for different crisis centers in the area. Yeah, because yeah, she hugs him and then she's like, "You have been assaulted. Please." go to the nearest rape crisis center. I have called a police car to take you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a suitably stiff delivery for a robot man, and yet uh, there's humor to it, I think, and the humor is very subtle, but it's there if you look for it. 
But at the same time, you know, it, it, it's also real because those, those kinds of crimes, even when it's just attempted and not carried through to completion, like, you know, it, it doesn't end once once the, the perp is, is out of commission. <laughs> you know, there, there's emotional fallout that needs to be dealt with. And I do like that this movie acknowledges it, even if it is done for a humorous effect. Sure. Um, so we get... Where uh, at the gas station, RoboCop, you know, recognizes or the guy recognizes RoboCop and he start he goes back to the police station and he has this um, looks like this, you know, sort of knife like thing that pokes out of his hand that he can jack into the computer matrix and sort of track. And he, he tracks down and he sees that Alex Murphy himself is dead. He sees, you know, he tracks down the members of the game. He, you know, figures out who they are. And, uh, well, he gets to, to actually investigate, but th- this harkens back to something because w- when we get that montage where he's being turned into RoboCop, I believe they do comment about how they've erased or blocked out his his memories, so that he'll just have the policing skills. They don't have to worry about any emotional baggage. And this is where RoboCop starts to to find his humanity again. Is that where he has? Doesn't he have the dream sequence around the same time? Yeah, I think I think it's shortly after. Like he remembers a house, he remembers a, a child, and he remembers a woman, and you know, you know, presumably, you know, that's that's his family, and he starts to get curious about who they were and who he used to be. Right, because he goes, he he finds his former address, and he goes there, and it's dilapidated. It has these sort of, um, you know, robot. Or it has these like TV advertising salesmen. And he gets these like uh, sad sort of flashes of what his life used to be. Again, all filmed from the first person. It's very surreal. But so you, you never get to see Alex Murphy interact with his family, but you just see it through his eyes. Yeah, and and isn't isn't the implication that his family is dead? Oh, I didn't get that his family was dead, but I think that they they moved on. They're not at that house anymore. He, um, I mean, why he doesn't try to track them down further, I'm not really sure. They they do more of yeah, the wife, I think, in RoboCop too. But but wasn't wasn't there police tape on the house? There is some sort of tape, but they're not dead. I mean, because the, I don't know. They don't, they don't explain a whole lot with with that. They give you enough of a hint of his family life to make you feel more sorry for RoboCop after you've just seen all these action scenes. Um. But pretty soon, RoboCop goes back to track down uh, Boddicker. That's a great villain name. It's it's very eighties cop show. It is, and like I like that before RoboCop goes in to to get Boddicker. You know, Boddicker's setting up this cocaine deal with this guy with the big mustache and this plaid shirt. And that could be like any scene from uh, any cop show in the 80s. But then RoboCop comes in and like, oh, hell breaks loose because he can take a licking and keep on ticking. And he's just blowing the shit out of people. I mean, he doesn't just gun people down. He's uh, the, the editing and the music. It's uh, I love the RoboCop theme. It's like oh, a real that sound heroic. effect of just metal slamming together. That is so good. Right. It's a, it's a good heroic theme. And, it, you know, it, you watch the movie and it, you're a bit surprised. Oh, this is kind of early in the movie for RoboCop to track down the bad guy. And he's, <laughs> you know, freaking out. And RoboCop's throwing him through windows. 
Saying like you have the right to remain silent. They give us the, the Miranda rights for comedic effect. And uh, he takes Boddicker back to the police station, and the police station in Robocop looks a hell of a lot like the police station in Beverly Hills Cop. Well, it's sort of it's sort of your stock eighties yeah. action movie police station. There's lots it's of people big, milling about, lots of paperwork, lot, yeah. lots of presumably hookers talking to, to officers. Right, uh, a big open area, a lot of wood everywhere, which makes it feel very eighties. And um, that he brings in Boddicker and books him, and they ask him what the charges are, which is sort of funny. Because presumably people would know who Boddicker is because he has, you know, all these drug dealing charges and murder and all these things. <laughs> so in the meantime, there's also the uh, storyline of the the OCP stuff going on where, uh, what is it, Dick Jones, is that his name? Yeah, where Ronnie Cox is getting revenge on Bob Morton, on Miguel Ferrer. Oh, yes. Where Boddicker comes in and says, bitches leave, as these hookers leave Bob Morton alone. and uh, That is, he, the, he, that is he, one of the oft-quoted lines, bitches leave. It is. It's, they don't even like do a close-up on his face. It's sort of like a... The delivery is really well done. They play like a laser disc where it's Dick Jones saying, oh, yeah, by the way, I've, hi- I've hired... Boddicker to you know nobody nobody fucks with me man and uh you feel a bit sad for Bob Morton not that he was a good guy exactly but he you know he has a great line earlier in the movie where Robocop does something he's like I love this guy it's uh I don't know do you feel bad when Bob Morton gets blown up with a grenade he leaves he beats him he like shoots his in the knee and then he uh puts the grenade on the table and leaves and he, he blows, gets blown up to smithereens. Not really. I don't feel, I don't feel too bad. And I think that's primarily because there, there aren't really, there aren't that many good people in this movie. Like there, there's, there's Murphy mm. and his partner and they're pro they, they seem, they would seem to be the only two legitimately good at heart human beings in this whole film and everybody else is some kind of crooked or some kind of scum or some kind of some kind of person who makes a lot of other people's lives difficult right and all the ceo ocp guys are really just looking out for themselves they want to be the top they want to be the top dog but they can't seem to get over the old man or win over the old man to their side and it it must be said that um, what's going on here is uh, the movie almost has like two bad guys Robocop has to take care of at the end, right? There's sort of the more typical thing where he goes after Boddicker and the rest of the game, but then later he goes after Dick Jones as well. Yes, and and uh, I, I like it when those two those those two antagonists storylines dovetail into each other, and and I love that it's it's set up, it is hinted at and set up uh, earlier in the film because uh, you know RoboCop has has those directives you know to uphold the law to protect and serve, uh, and a third directive which is classified and even he doesn't know what it is. 
And it turns out that directive is he cannot harm uh, an OCP employee or asset. Right, it's an insurance policy. Because he is himself an OCP product. Yep, it's a, you know, that that's a nice plot twist. Um, I have to say, you know, you feel real bad for RoboCop. There's a moment where it, OCP sicks a bunch, he, uh, they sick a bunch of um, goons after him, and he's being shot at yet again. Like, there's a crack in his visor. You can see his human eye peering from his mask, which is a great visual. And he's stumbling through the parking garage at the police station and he gets picked up by Lewis and they go to, um, you know, head towards to get Boddicker and all those guys. And, um, and before the big showdown, Robocop, uh, removes his, uh, his helmet. And what we see is a very frightening visage that I think looks terrifying. And it makes me not like the end of this movie because it doesn't look as cool as Robocop does. It's, it's really, I mean, it's thematically, RoboCop is sort of embracing his human side, right? But it's terrifying. Well, well Peter Peter Weller's face, especially that sort of pulled back, hairless look they <laughs> yeah, give him, yeah. it's truly ghoulish. It is it is truly frightening. It it hammers home the fact that you know he he should be dead by all rights. Yeah, I also think it would but, be. Oh, go on. Well, but also, uh, I like I like the amount of damage that RoboCop suffers at the end of this movie. It's it's like Die Hard. He he truly suffers in the pursuit of his goal. And it's satisfying as he he picks off the bad guy. I mean, the one of the bad guys gets mutated by the toxic waste and just gets run over by Boddicker. That almost feels like a trauma <laughs> scene. The guy just explodes. Oh yeah, he's all boily and drippy. Yeah, but then you know it's. You have uh, Lewis gets what she gets shot or injured or something, and then it's RoboCop versus uh, Nash and Boddicker, and Nash has this super sort of flamethrower gun, or no, it, it's like a grenade launcher thing. It's really powerful that he's shooting at RoboCop. They sort of exchange, they sort of shoot around a bit, and then um, Nash gets behind the controls of this industrial machine and drops a load of, you know, tons of metal on top of RoboCop, pinning him down. <laughs> good, again, good use of the steel mill. Exactly. It's like the, the third time they've returned there to that scene, and it's uh, pretty effective. Well, what, what do you think about the way that Boddicker and Nash get taken out? Well, I'm trying to remember, because like, like, Boddicker gets gets stabbed by RoboCop's data jack, doesn't he? Yeah, in the neck. <laughs> and he bleeds profusely. And Nash is, you know, he he just drops the stuff on, on RoboCop. RoboCop's pinned. And uh, Lewis takes sort of the, the super gun, aims it at Leon Nash, and he just sort of explodes. Yeah, I, I like that she stays that she stays a part of this movie. Mm -hmm. I think a lesser movie would have had RoboCop somehow get his gun arm free and, and shoot his opponent. I like that his partner gets that kill shot. And I always get thrown off because it feels like, well, this is the end of the movie, right? But no, because no. we have Dick Jones. And not only that, we get another uh, Ed 209 to take care of. 
So what do you think about this ending sequence of the movie where it's sort of the final boss, right? It's it yes it it, it is uh, I like uh, I I love Ed two and nine falling downstairs as as silly as it is I love seeing that giant practical effect tumble down the staircase and you get Dick Jones is uh, taking the old man hostage yes and RoboCop can't shoot him because he's a registered OCP asset and this is this is what I love this is the way good science fiction works because the movie stays true to the sci-fi rules and the sci-fi rules include RoboCop has to uphold his directives including the directive that he can't harm an OCP asset so all the head of the corporation has to do is say you're fired and suddenly RoboCop can unload on the guy it is so brilliant and so funny and it works so well and it knocks him through the window, and you get one of those cheesy death scenes you see in the 80s a lot where people get thrown out of windows, and they're screaming as they fall down. Yeah, he gets Grubered. Yeah, yeah, right. It is the same thing as Gruber, although I think it looks a little bit worse, to be honest. <laughs> well, they, they spent all their money on making ED-209 walk. Right. Again, expect a genius effects everywhere. And uh, the last line of this movie is a bit of a groaner. But they do an even worse version of it in the sequels. So the the old man says, uh, nice shooting, son. What's your name? And uh, Robocop cracks a smile and says, Murphy. And then it ends. Well, see, I don't think that's so much of a groaner. I, th- I think your experience with that line is tainted by the sequels. I see it as a <laughs> wonderful reaffirmation yeah. of... of of RoboCop's humanity, but also that, you know, he's come to terms with the fact that he's part man, part machine, all cop. He's, he's reached that happy medium in in that moment. You're right. It's a payoff. I just get, I get thrown off by RoboCop smiling and it, if I'm seeing that dialogue in a comic book, I could swallow it, but in a movie, it's a little bit difficult to, this is such an intense movie that it ends on a joke. I don't know. This kind of throws me off. I guess I would have expected RoboCop to walk off into the sunset. I don't. I don't. I don't consider that a joke. It's, his smile is what what does it for me. I don't. Well, maybe a. It's, well, it's not even a quip. He just has the slightest bit of of sass. Although it still does look ghoulish coming out of the Peter Weller RoboCop face. It does. I mean, they wisely cover up the face more in the sequels. Although it's not always played by Peter Weller, but we'll get into that. So, uh, do you think people should see this original RoboCop film? Absolutely. I agree. This is and, a uh, solid satire. Well, t- it's violent. It's uh, yep. It's good action. It is good science fiction. It is good police yep. procedural. That's oh, right. And it has I'll tell to, you what, if you can find yeah. it in a bargain bin... You buy that for a dollar? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's another ongoing thing is the sitcom with this mustache man who... Hey, it looks almost like a Three's Company kind of setup where these women with big breasts are around him and, you know, they get cake splattered on them. Yeah, in the bikini. I'd buy that for a dollar. But it's like even something that people in the movie laugh at and say it as a catchphrase. It's, yeah, it's um, tr- it's real. It's treated like a real part of their world, and we only get to right. see the tiniest little snippets of the show. I'd love to know what a whole half hour of that is like. Although, 
the, the this film, you know, the future it's predicting could have been ahead of its time. That could be an adult swim show that's only about 10 minutes in length for all we know. Well, I mean, think of, uh, what is it, Too Many Cooks? That yeah, well, that's ridiculous... what I'm thinking. In the 20s, Tim and Eric might be doing the show where the catchphrase is, I'd buy that for a dollar, and they're surrounded by bikini babes all the time. Right. That's a good point. Um... And then, so, uh, you know, yeah. John C. Riley comes in, buy that for your dollar. <laughs> Dummy. So let's move on to pitch a sequel. So we're <laughs> going to pretend, you know, no sequels are made for RoboCop. If we're going to pitch a sequel, what would we do? Um, do you mind if I start? No, go right ahead. So uh, mine will be called Miss RoboCop. And it would start with Officer Lewis and RoboCop. Or, or they're in the middle of a, a fierce shootout. And um, they're trying to decide what to do. And Lewis says, uh, I'll, you know, she's being brave. She says, I'll go. You can be my backup, Murphy. And RoboCop um, is a bit hesitant, but he, he lets her do it. Lewis gets over her head. So RoboCop goes... Um, he selflessly charges in the middle of, uh, Ann Lewis getting, you know, brutally attacked and he sets off a secret self-destruct mode only he knows about and he explodes, he <laughs> sacrifices himself, but the explosion, the force is so great that it critically injures Ann Lewis. And so they take the leftover bits of RoboCop and the, the injured Ann Lewis and make Ms. RoboCop. They make a female RoboCop played by... And Lewis, of course. And um, people don't take Miss Robocop seriously. They they try to give her, you know, the local shopping mall tries to use her as a model to sell dresses and clothing. Like, they don't really take her seriously. But when a um, when the police sergeant goes rogue and makes sort of like a makes part of the police department fascist and tries to do a takeover of OCP Miss Robocop is really torn about is she going to help these cops that have gone bad is she going to help the few good cops that remain is she going to be loyal to the corporation so you get this sort of interesting uh, epic three way battle going off at the end and uh, Miss Robocop survives and the last shot is she goes back to her locker. She opens it up and uh, she has a little Miss Robocop tear as she looks and she sees she has uh, Murphy's ghoulish visage, part of his face that was remains from the explosion hanging in her locker. Who put it there? Well, she did. She took part of, part of the fleshy oh. bit. Kept it in her pocket and uh, it's something to her, remind her of her, her, her old partner. Yeah. <laughs> There's the one that has the gun and the other that has the faces she steals. Right. And the poster for Miss Robocop would be an extreme close up. The top of the visor looks like Robocop, but then the bottom with the chin, it has like thick lipstick on it. Really, you're not going to go with like a single bow on the side of the helmet. Nope. Uh, 
maybe lipstick and, and then it's eating like a strawberry or something. Oh, they don't so, have to match it up uh, when she eats it then. Yep. So what, what's your pitch of sequel? All right, my sequel is Robo Crook. So uh, the uh, OCP decides that the ED-209 program is such a disaster that they just write the whole thing off, get rid of all the assets, and fire just about everybody who's ever worked on the project, including the brilliant roboticist who actually designed ED-209. So he's dejected. He's humiliated. He wants revenge on OCP, uh, and he thinks he knows how to get it. Because it turns out, Murphy wasn't the first RoboCop. There was an earlier attempt to create a RoboCop that failed. And the part of, and the reason it failed is that the this cop that got badly injured, he was a crooked cop who double-crossed some other crooked cops and was beaten uh, nearly to death. And he was taken and made into a RoboCop, but they could not control him. He was too crooked. He was too psychologically damaged. So he was put into cold storage. So this roboticist, he's heard rumors about this, and he's smart. He can hack. So before his security clearance for OCP is revoked, he gets the robo, he gets the prototype RoboCop out of cold storage, brings it home, and tries to revive him and use him as a living weapon to get revenge on OCP. But it works too well. The robo-crook breaks out of the, uh, the laboratory, tracks down the other crooked cops, and short of it is, makes himself the kingpin of a new criminal empire. And because he has all these, uh, these military-grade cybernetics, he can think faster, plot faster, and, and generally be a crook. He can organize a criminal organization much better than all of the competition. So he is uniting the entire Detroit underworld and he becomes this mysterious kingpin well eventually uh, hmm. eventually you know, Robocop and the Seattle Police Department the S- Seattle uh, the Detroit Police Department they they figure this out uh, and it turns into an all eventually an all out citywide war between the police department and this criminal empire uh, because the Robocrook at this point has decided that uh, he doesn't just want to take down OCP he wants to take it over and run the whole city like his own private fiefdom and it will, of course, end with a crazy showdown between RoboCop and RoboCrook. Uh, RoboCrook will have upgraded himself with illegally procured military-grade hardware, so he'll have he'll be bristling with guns, armor plating, all sorts of stuff. But as always, RoboCop will defeat him with good old-fashioned police know-how and his data jack. Because he'll find he'll uh, during the fight he'll find the computer terminal that uh, Robocrook is using for his uplink, and he will overload Robocrook with data, and Robocrook will including some of his own memory, so Robocrook will burn himself out. He'll have Murphy's sense of justice uploaded into his head, and he then will not allow himself to live. And what would the uh, the title be called? Uh, Robocops. Since there are two RoboCops, Murphy and the Prototype. That's pretty neat. So, finally, we're moving on to what you're watching. We're talking about something we've seen lately. And uh, I saw a uh, nominee for Best Documentary Feature. Uh, It's a nominee for the Academy Awards this year. And it's called Life Animated. Have you seen this one? No, no, I haven't. Tell me about it. 
Yeah, so it's uh, directed by Roger Ross Williams, who won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject Music by Prudence in um, 2011. And uh, Life Animated is based on uh, the book of the same name by Ron Suskind, uh, who is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal who has two sons, uh, one of which, Owen, is autistic. And uh, this was in the 90s where they didn't know much about autism. And around the time, you know, his, his son is the age of three or four, he uh, he starts regressing. He loses the ability to speak. His, his gait becomes ungainly, all sorts of other issues. And uh, they, they notice he's watching a... Oh, he's watching the Little Mermaid. He's obsessed with watching Disney cartoons on videotape over and over again, and he's watching um, Little Mermaid. Aladdin, isn't it? Or no? Well, I mean, Aladdin. He, he watches everything, really. But it 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 talks about him specifically watching Little Mermaid, and he says, uh, "Juvas, Juvas." They they think he's asking for juice, but what he's trying to say is just your voice. You know, it's, it's the scene with Ursula, the poor unfortunate souls. I don't want much, just your voice. And they begin using the, the cartoons and the stuffed animals and the Disney stuff as a way to talk to him. And he regains his ability to speak. He's the head of like a Disney club at his school. He ends up living at a, um, I guess I'd call it an assisted living facility. Not that it's an old folks home, but they have uh, adults there to help um, people with, with disability, young adults with disabilities, uh, you know, help them with, with day-to-day things if they need it. And he works part-time at a movie theater and... Uh, shockingly, they got the rights from Disney to use clips from real Disney cartoons, so they'll show him struggling with things watching a cartoon, and it's the actual clip. Uh, they also use original animation that looks a bit like oil paintings, because he sort of doodles in his own time and would do these short stories of him being in charge of all the Disney sidekicks, and as you mentioned, yes, you know, Aladdin is a big thing, Gilbert Gottfried, uh, pops up in there briefly, um, as, as someone that pops up surprising people at his, uh, Disney club. And, uh, it's, it's really well done. It's a real gentle story. Uh, from what I understand, the book goes a lot more into the family dynamic because they talk a bit about the, the struggle raising a kid who's autistic and going to special schools. Cause they also had another son that didn't have these problems and, um, it's sort of how, how they cope with that. And it, it focuses uh, a lot on the, the Disney side. I, I was amused by, according to Wikipedia, the review in Slant Magazine says the movie never addresses Disney's wholly manufactured stronghold on turning adolescent desire into a consumerist impulse. Which, uh, that is not the fair point, point of... I mean, it's a fair point, but that's not what this documentary is. It's not trying to be a, a sly critique of Disney or something. It's... Um, I, I was, was moved by it. I, I quite liked it. And you can actually watch it uh, for free if you have an Amazon Prime membership through Amazon Video. That's where I caught it. Very cool. So I'd heard about, I'd heard about his case before. I'd heard, I knew the documentary was coming out. I had not seen it yet. Yeah, it had a very brief uh, theatrical run, as these things tend to do, but that it got nominated for Best Documentary Feature is a bit um, surprising. So we'll have to see, you know, what uh, if it wins or, or what happens. Um, what's what's something that you've been watching lately? Well, I also saw a documentary. Oh, okay. Uh, the one I've been meaning to see for quite some time. I saw Yodorowsky's Dune. Ah, yes. I liked that one. 
How did what did you think? I really enjoyed it. Uh, I I love the care that was taken with with animating some of the storyboards that he had uh, he had worked on yeah. with uh, the French comic artist Moebius. Uh, just I I'm fascinated by movies that never really got made, uh, and and this is one of the most legendary ones. Um, and you know some some of my favorite people who had a tremendous impact on Hollywood worked on this film uh, that that we will never see. <laughs> And I don't know. I just, I, as as somebody who who works in a, in a creative field, I like seeing these candid accounts of different creative processes. And as somebody who's worked on projects that never came to fruition, I, I like seeing other people work on projects that never quite came to fruition. Uh, there's a really damning part of the movie where they show just how many movies over the years have crib stuff from the the Dune storyboards. Oh yes, that's a a big part of the the movie that to to help get financing for the film, he had these like five hundred page books printed full of concept uh-huh. art and the full storyboards, which were passed around Hollywood, and uh, that's that's why that's why uh, Moebius and uh, H.R. Geezer worked on Alien. Uh, that's that's why so many of the people that were assembled to do Yodorowsky's adaptation of Dune ended up working on so many other films. Uh, also, Flash later. Gordon is a notable one. Yep. <laughs> and they, they, that they even show like a scene of Prometheus uh, that, that looks shot for shot like something from the storyboards for Yodorowsky's Dune is pretty damning. It does make me wonder if they are going to do like a, a an animated storyboard feature or something because that would be... Um, that would be neat. really cool. I wish somebody would publish one of these books. I pay a hundred dollars for a copy of Yodorowsky's Dune book. I want to read those storyboards. Oh yeah, I mean they they show the the glimpses you get are pretty interesting. The the spaceships look insane. Um, it, it's a very loose adaptation of Dune. I mean, oh very very true. He 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 admits himself he didn't read the book. Uh, he didn't read the book until after he started working on the script. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what he rented like a Spanish castle to write the script, and he got Dan O'Bannon to work on the script, I think, or or do some or not that maybe do some designs or something, um, because Dan O'Bannon had done a an early film with John Carpenter called Dark Star. Well, he was going to be the director of photography, as I recall. Oh, okay, sure. Um, uh, there's a, a lovely part where Yodorowsky talks about seeing David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, it's so he's, terrible. There's some, some schadenfreude there that he, he's he's happy that it wasn't that good. Despite he, the fact that he admires and respects David Lynch. Yeah, and uh, the amount of passion that man has is pretty fascinating. Also, the way he, he'll, like, jump between English and Spanish and French, like, really quickly. Uh makes it yeah i mean i thought the documentary was excellent it i don't think the special effects would have been able to put his vision to life or if it would it would have looked real stage i don't know like they, they talk about a, a a sequence where um maybe fade rotha or something is going to talk to the baron harkonnen and he has to like as he goes through this hallway all these spikes come up through the floor and he has to do these acrobatics to not get punctured by the spikes to deliver this message. Well, even the the opening of the film is going to be this long uh, push in where we see the galaxy, and we push in through the entirety of the galaxy, 
through a pirate raid on a spice tanker and eventually settle on I don't know either Caladan or Carino, one of the the primary planets in the Dune in the Duneverse, as I like to call it. And they did say that uh, he took some of the ideas from the Dune storyboards and the scripts and used them in graphic novels. With, yes, and yeah. the the Meta Barons uh, graphic novel series is is based on a lot of uh, ideas that he wanted to put in Dune but couldn't because the, the the movie never got made. It's it's a series. Meta Barons is a fascinating series. I need to read more of it. I believe Dark Horse Comics has um, translated some of those in the United States. I think you may be. I think you may be right. I'll have, I'll have to look into it. I don't remember what imprint is on uh, the one that I have. And in fact, he was so inspired by the by the Yodorowsky's Dune documentary that he went to direct another movie, and it was his first time directing a movie in a long time. I believe it's based on the uh, the In Call graphic novel that he did with Moebius. Oh, maybe I'm not sure. Um, oh, which I think cool. is now that I think about it, I believe is animated, which is probably the medium that Yodorowsky mm. should have been directing for the whole time. Yeah, because he's known for having very uh, surreal uh, stuff, to to put it lightly. Um, so, in our final segment, uh, do you have any? you know, things you've worked on that you want to talk about that people can check out online? Oh, goodness. Well, my most uh, recent publication is uh, 100... Uh, oh, gosh, I, I need to double-check because we had a release date changed on us. I believe it is... Uh, 100, oh, yes, 100 Oddities for a Wasteland. It's a tabletop RPG uh, supplement. Uh, it's a table of 100 randomized oddities, encounters, NPCs, and other strangeness for your post-apocalyptic campaign. I co-wrote that with Clint Staples and Michael Varhola, and I also mm. provided all the illustrations. Including my favorite illustration, which is a bucket of fast food fried chicken with uh, the bones of house pets in it. Well, that's... Uh... That, was, that was a fun illustration to work on. Yeah. Sounds like it. Despite the grim subject matter. I have been uh, working on um, some some writing lately, articles I can't really talk about. Uh, but I, I guess the, the latest thing I can talk about is I've been doing a column for the website Talk Film Society. And uh, it's a I do an article every two weeks. It's called Sequel Surprises about sequels that... Uh, that I enjoy that can be a little bit off the beaten path. I recently did one talking about the Muppets take Manhattan. Cool. And you can find that at talkfilmsociety.com. Um, where can people catch up with you on Twitter, Thrasher? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. You can find As me on... in the elected office and not the undulate. And you can find me on Twitter at MATWB. And I'm going to try something here. Something bold, something new, something to put the Sequel Cast 2 stamp on this, the first episode of the Sequel Cast 2, Electric Boogaloo. I want you to talk about something for a second while I try something. Well, if I am to talk about anything... Uh, it will be my desire to see RoboCop 2. So RoboCop 2, 
I've never seen that movie all the way through. The last time I tried to watch it, for a number of reasons, I didn't get past the first uh, 20 minutes. Um, It's a special kind of bad, and one that I cannot wait to explore in its entirety next week. And yet, it's from Irvin Kirshner, the director of Empire Strikes Back. Well, I mean, there's a... Some strange extremes of good and bad in every human being. (laughs) There was a lot of deleted scenes from RoboCop 2. And uh, famously, it had a screenplay originally by Frank Miller that people said was um, unfilmable. Well, we'll talk about all that and more next week. That's right, yeah. So what's coming down to the... Pike is Is it Pike or Pipe? Because I always thought it was Pipe. Because when you say Pike, it sounds like a fish's bowel movement. Yeah, let's see. Oh, never mind. I'm trying to do stuff. Um... We, we can cut that out in editing. Yep. So, until next time, uh, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. Our names aren't Murphy, but we could legally change them. You know, I could go for some baby food right about now. And what the hell? I'd buy that for a dollar. Wait, what was that? I've seen that. Oh. Really? And not the Transformer. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs>